Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. The only view most voters have of the Libertarian Party has come recently with coverage of Gary Johnson related to the presidential race. Unfortunately, that coverage has not been very issues-based. Today, I'm talking with Alex Merced, Libertarian candidate for the United States Senate in New York. He's opposing Chuck Schumer, and we are going to cover the spectrum of the Libertarian perspective on a number of issues. This is Beth from the Right here for a special episode of Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hi, everyone. I'm delighted to share this interview with Alex Merced with you. I would give him an introduction, but he tells his story so beautifully in his own words that we'll dive right into the conversation. So, Alex, I'm really excited to have you on today and would love for you to start off just telling our audience a little about yourself. Okay, so uh, my name is Alex Merced, 2016 Libertarian candidate for U.S. Senate here in New York. Now, I'm 31, so um, I, if I won, I'd be the youngest US, serving U.S. Senator. So what I always like to tell the, to assure people that I have experiences that I think very much inform why I'm running. So, for example, um, a little backstory on me is you really have to go back to my mom. My mom is from Guatemala, so I'm, I'm the son of an immigrant. I'm first generation. Uh, she grew up in Guatemala pretty much in the 50s and later on. In the 1950s, what happened is it was regime change in Guatemala. There was a guy by the name of Jacobo Arbenz in charge, and there was a coup that, with the assistance of the U.S., overthrew Jacobo Arbenz. Now, the 
problem is that coup didn't end up being a very stable uh, new regime, and they fell apart very quickly. And for years, Guatemala went, was was under uh, dictators, civil war, etc. And this is sort of the environment that my mom grew up in. So knowing that has also sort of informed my views uh, on foreign policy. But she moves over here to the to the U.S. She meets my dad, and then they get together. Uh, have me and my younger brother. Now, some people are just better separately than together, and that was the case with my mom and my dad, and they eventually split. Both of them sort of had to start really from nothing and both rebuild their lives um, after that, at that point. So basically, I got to see both of my parents work hard, struggle, but both of them got back into a middle-class life. So watching my mom work three part-time jobs and go to school so that way she can put food on the table and be able to get a better life really taught me that anything is possible because if my mom can go through what she went through nothing i can ever do including running for senator including starting a retail store um could ever pale in comparison to what i saw my mom go through so she's always been a constant source of inspiration also her just her constant optimism but basically i eventually go to school in ohio so i grew up in a suburban area in connecticut you then go to college in ohio and while i'm in college i start a retail store a comic book store and i'm here this 20 year old kid who literally that money that I used to start the store was the money I had for a place to live. So I did this while being homeless while going to college. Uh, I started a retail store uh, with a a friend of mine, people telling us, oh, you guys are just young kids. You guys, you know, this is too big of a project for you. But no, we succeeded. We started the store. We had a line around the block the day it opened. And we did really well and recouped our investment only in a couple of months. Uh, Unfortunately, it's our first business. So we didn't anticipate that college kids would be run out of money by the end of the semester. So we didn't plan for that. So eventually the store did close. But basically then what happens is that I buy a ticket to the Philippines. It's something to sort of keep myself motivated as I go through the remainder of my college experience. And I go to the Philippines. And in the Philippines, the only news channel I had in the apartment that I rented for the month was Fox News. And that year was, 2000, was 2007. So then what happens is I see the debate where Ron Paul confronts Giuliani, and that's sort of kind of what sparks me becoming libertarian. But that also sparks me going to New York, and I was always sort of a musician, uh, cultural studies kind of guy, but that really got me into economics and finance, and I spent the last eight years working, training people in economics and finance, and studying the economy. Literally, the economy's been my life the last eight years, understanding how it works, understanding the different aspects of policy, how politics influences it, how global events influences it, and teaching that to people. So that's sort of my experiences in urban settings like New York City, in rural settings like in Ohio, and in suburban settings in Connecticut, and the different entrepreneurial experiences I've had, et cetera, that sort of give me the perspective I have that I think makes me suited to be a U.S. senator. So can you talk a little bit more about why you're a libertarian? You spoke about some of your mother's experiences influencing your foreign policy and something in Ron Paul resonating with you. Can you say more about, you know, what it means to you to be a libertarian and how you you came to identify as one? I've always had I've always had a deep appreciation for individualism. That's why I was a musician. That's why I'm into all sorts of creative endeavors. Um, the idea of expression, of possibility. So that was always sort of a, a thing for me. Um, but also seeing my mom work hard and go through what she went through just also showed me that the fact that things are possible, that things can be overcome, that basically this theme of possibility. Um, 
there was also other things that kind of started pushing me in that direction. When I was a kid, I did enjoy watching 2020 with John Stossel, who's a libertarian. I only read, I've only read one Ayn Rand book, by, uh, by the way. A lot of people assume that we've read every book by Ayn Rand, and that's mm-hmm. kind of how that goes. But I've only read Anthem. It was in sixth grade. It was a school book. But the focus of that book really is individualism. In that book, if, if you never read the book, the, the idea is that you live in this sort of post, um, post-apocalyptic world where basically everybody refers to themselves as we and us. No one, the word I isn't the word. Um, it, basically, those who don't think those who show aspects of individualism get pushed into lower class jobs and those who basically focus on the group get pushed into higher level jobs so there's no sort of innovation. It's a really, it was a book that really kind of got me thinking about creativity and I was kind of already in that mold. But then what happens with Ron Paul, because I started getting really concerned about foreign policy with the wars in Iraq, because I, I was a Democrat and I voted for John Kerry in 2004. So when I heard Ron Paul talk about foreign policy and blowback, that resonated with me, so I started learning more about him, and I started reading his other positions, and I started realizing I really agree with pretty much everything he said. I always, some of those positions, I just thought I always had a weird, independent mind because I never felt, you know, I never fit neatly with the Democrats, never fit neatly with the Republicans, and I became obsessed, and I just started reading book after book, and um, basically. I always have questions, and I always seek answers, and I, that's kind of how I got down that rabbit hole. But to me, libertarianism is really, is really just about possibility, the idea that free people can find solutions that we can't even imagine. So it's not about libertarians always knowing what the solution is, but about having an environment where solutions can arise and not locking or shutting down the realm of possibility before those solutions are available. You know, Gary Johnson talks about libertarianism as where most Americans are. They just don't know it, right? The the idea that most of us are socially liberal, fiscally conservative. Does that resonate with you, or do you think that there's more to it than that? I do think there's a little bit of a philosophical leap when you become a libertarian. There's a sort of uh, belief in freedom, but I do think most people are naturally libertarians in a sense, because who's going to sit there and say, Oh, no, freedom's, freedom's a horrible thing. I don't want people to be free. No, everyone kind of naturally wants people to be free as much as possible. The, what happens is that just people, over time, they grow, they grow skepticism in freedom in certain areas. Um, sometimes, well, actually, usually it's just out of a, a lack of a deeper context, historical context, because every, everything about the world today is a result of decisions that were made long ago, policies that were put in place long ago, and... As you go back and you you go down the rabbit hole and study history, philosophy, a lot of times you start seeing that a lot of things that give us skepticism over allowing people to be sort of giving people more reign over their lives um, often are undue. And if you look at history, I think it does support the libertarian argument a lot more than a lot of people give it credit for. But um, I do think most people intrinsically believe in freedom because most people want to be treated the treat others the way they want to be treated. So if I want to be, if I want to have the right to do X, Y, and Z, I got to protect other people's rights to do X, Y, and Z. And I think that's just sort of a, a natural instinct for people. There's a spectrum of view in the Libertarian Party. As you think about your candidacy, where do you feel like you fall on that spectrum? You know, I'm thinking about people who don't believe in any sort of regulation, even looking at like state and local governments regulating things like driver's licenses. So where do you fall on that spectrum? And then what are the most important issues to you if you think about yourself as a United States senator from New York? Yes. Um, far as the spectrum, let's say the spectrum was a score of 1 to 10. 
Uh, I would say Gary Johnson himself is maybe a four or five, where he's he's libertarian. I think philosophically he 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 gets it, but um, and myself more of let's say a nine or a ten, where my own personal views are quite far down the rabbit hole. Not and I didn't get there overnight. I've put I've shared my intellectual journey over the years on YouTube. So there's over two thousand videos on YouTube from over the last eight years showing sort of the questions I've asked, the things I've learned, and how I got to where I'm at now. Now, running for U.S. Senator, I'm not running U.S. Senator as a U.S. Senator to tell everybody, let's go be libertarian level 10. Um, I'm running mainly to to talk about the issues we do have today, whether it's issues with the economy, uh, the drug war, the our foreign policy regime change, really talking about sort of the meat and potatoes of policy these days, and offer people an alternative. I don't expect people to agree with me 100%. It's Again, libert- libertarianism is not something, especially to the deep level that I'm at, it's not something you just get to because you heard a couple of good arguments. It, it does take some time, some self-reflection, some seeking out answers. But what I want to do is change the culture of politics in a sense of what people expect from the elected representatives in, in three areas. Thoughtfulness, accessibility, and transparency. People who message me on my Facebook page, they get answers. And when I, if I get elected to office, I plan to be doing a weekly live stream so that way people can tell me what they don't like about what I do and what I, they do like what I do. I want people to be part of the process. I don't think enough elected representatives do that and if anything, most elected representatives try to make people not part of the process as much as they can um, and I want to change that and also give thoughtful answers. So a lot of times you just kind of hear bumper sticker answers from a lot of elected officials. I try to avoid that. Sometimes I do go a little bit into the weeds but I want people to know that I am thinking about these issues and that I've, I've spent a lot of time reflecting on these things. Uh, so, so that's sort of where I want to change the culture of it. Now, as far as the issues go, the issues where I'm focusing on is one, sort of the cost of living in just policies. And then all of these, I've, I've made probably half hour of the 45 minute videos where I go really in depth with this on my campaign website, but I go into policies that have helped increase the cost of education, increase the cost of healthcare, and have increased the cost of housing. Those are huge parts of people's cost of living. So when people talk about how they need more wages, it's not that people need more income. They need to keep more of the income that they have. So we have to think about what's driving the cost of living. And those are three areas where I think there's a lot of where you can roll back a lot of policies that'll help those prices get back to sanity. Because, I mean, housing prices, education prices, and healthcare prices have gotten out of control. And also, we're spending taxpayer dollars to fund the policies that do that in the first place. So if you remove those policies, we can probably afford to do some tax relief and also give you a little bit more of your income that way. So if you do that, you can free up people's incomes. They can, And it's not just about being able to buy stuff. Um, your income is part of your time. So let's say you work for $10 an hour. If you have to pay an extra $10 for something or pay an extra $10 in taxes, that's an hour of your life that you're not spending with your family, not spending volunteering in your community. Um, so that's that's time. So if you can free up people's incomes by changing bad policies, you can give people back time and money. So they can choose to take that money and spend it on things that they need, or they can choose to work less and spend more time in their community and with their families. I want to give people those options. So that's one aspect. Also, I want to address... The two issues where I feel the most loss of human life is done on a daily basis, that's the drug war and our foreign policy, especially regarding regime change. There's a lot of loss of life on both sides constantly in these issues, and I don't feel either of the two major parties are talking 
at all sensibly about these issues. And that's, I think, the biggest case for Gary Johnson in the sense that really when it comes to life and trying to make sure there's as many lives saved over the next eight years, Gary Johnson to me is the only choice that actually represents a less loss of life over the next eight years. So those are sort of the areas where I focus on most and where I would focus on most as a legislator, mainly, especially the economy, where I've put out the most, most of the proposals I've met as sort of new policy ideas have been focused on the economy, creating an environment for uh, better economic growth. You put yourself as a nine or 10 on the scale of libertarian ideology. What does that tell you about sort of how you would interact in Congress? Because it's it's not like Congress is uh, running over with libertarians, you know. So no. what do you, what's your sense of – I know you're a listener of the show. What's your sense of, of bipartisanship or, I guess, tripartisanship? How, how would you look to compromise or not? You know, would, would you be a voice on the outskirts often advocating for a cause or would you – try to uh, inject your principles into legislation that, that you might feel ultimately compromises them, but at least moves the ball forward? I do. Um, I am fine with compromise to an extent. I'm fine with compromising and trying to get something moving in the right direction. Um, I'm not going to compromise if it means taking a step back, step back, a step backwards. So I guess it just depends whether I think of a piece of legislation as a step forward or a step backwards. I don't expect to get 100% out of a piece of legislation. The proposals that I'm putting forward aren't necessarily my ideal world positions, but they're, they're, they're proposals I think I can get Democrats and Republicans to the table on. Mm-hmm. So they're, 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 mar- they're marginal steps. Some of them may seem like big steps, but I think they're, they're politically plausible. I do think as one libertarian senator, and this is, I think, the biggest case for libertarians this year, because we're not going to have a libertarian senator next year, um, you know, but having a handful of libertarian senators or even one can help break the gridlock. Because what happens right now when you have Republicans and Democrats, Democrats don't want to concede the Republicans. Republicans don't want to concede the Democrats. So if you have a libertarian senator in the Senate, then what happens is that the Democrats can use that libertarian senator, the Republicans use, can use that libertarian senator as sort of an arbiter of ideas, because if you're working with them, you're not necessarily conceding to the other party. So I can bring both parties to the table on legislation that does move principle forward, that does protect people's rights, that does help do good things, that help, does help restore the ability for the economy to grow, that does help save lives. And those, and I can be a filter because basically I'm not going to work with them on legislation that moves things in the wrong direction. But if they bring good legislation, I can bring both parties to the table and get that passed and break through the gridlock because it wouldn't be a political win for either party to work with me necessarily uh, on those pieces of legislation. So I do want to not just grandstand. Now, of course, if there's some very – and occasionally there are going to be sort of very offensive pieces of legislation, things that are going to do with probably – violations of the fourth amendment and i'm generally using the constitution as my guideline as a legislator so while again i'm a 10 on the libertarian scale i'm not planning to go into a legislation to legislate libertarian level 10 i'm going in there to uphold the constitution because at the end of the day that's the job of a legislator to represent the people who they represent but within the confines of the constitution so that's the job description that's the job i'm going to go do Um, but at the same time I'm not one who's, who's going to be shy about sort of what my values are, what my principles are. But I do understand this is the job description. Represent the people that you represent within the confines of the Constitution, and that's what I'm going to do. Um, so basically, that kind of gives you sort of the benchmark. So again, I'm not, not going there to necessarily be an extremist. I have 
extreme views, but I will operate within the Constitution and fight for the Constitution and represent the people who are electing me. Even whether you know, we're not going to agree on 100% of everything, but I'm going to make sure that they have a voice within the process because that's what I'm elected to do. So I want to ask you to kind of do a lightning round with me of issues and as as briefly as you can, can you give me like sort of the libertarian perspective on these issues? Because I think our listeners who aren't very familiar with the Libertarian Party probably heard and appreciated your overall description of the party and then think, well, how does that translate to X, Y, or Z topic? So I'm going to start with uh, gun regulation. Gun regulation. Bottom line, we are against gun regulation. Um, What I like to say is that Anytime you start banning things or regulating things, you create less transparency. So you can get a warrant to search a legal gun dealer to kind of prevent the next gun crime, but it's really hard to get a warrant to an illegal gun dealer to prevent the next gun crime. So the less transparency you have in the gun market, the less transparency you have to prevent gun crimes in the future. Uh, Gay marriage. Gay marriage. We are for gay marriage. At the end of the day, we are for the right of contract. So any... Consenting parties should be able to enter a contract. So in the sense where you have a legally, federally recognized contract, uh, basically it should be open to all. Now, we're also not we're also for the idea that maybe government get out of the marriage licensing game altogether. But as long as the government is in the marriage licensing game, it should be an open institution. What about uh, laws that protect LGBT individuals from discrimination? Okay, uh, here's where this is where. Uh, okay, here's here's where I stand on this. I'm against prohibition, so I'm I am a- against discrimination. To me, my sister is a lesbian. I have very close friends who are transgendered, so I'm I'm a very big advocate for visibility of their issues. But when it comes to sort of anti-discrimination laws, my issues is this: if people aren't able to openly express their worst feelings, then it's it's hard. For us to address those issues, and it goes. This goes across not just this issue, but it's the same issue with guns, the same issue with drugs, same issue when you say you just can't do something. Um, the discussion ends, and you you don't you, the underlying problem is still there. The hate doesn't go away. So, for example, if there was a, a store that has a sign that says, you know, we don't want Latinos here. At least I know not to spend my money there, and and my friends will know not to spend their money there too because they don't support that. But the problem is uh, when that you have that lack of transparency, then what happens, I end up spending money, giving my money to people who maybe don't like me, and I end up economically empowering them. And that's, to me, that's troubling. Um, now, I'm for, now, as far as, like, like hate crime discrimin- uh, laws, I just think that if you're committing murder, if you're committing violent crimes, you should be punished, and you should be punished harshly. I don't, I'm against sort of sentencing guidelines, or, like, minimum this, minimum that. I'd rather have... If someone does, if a judge deems that someone deserves extra time because their motivations were were, were bad, were extra bad, then they should get that should be the judge in the court who decided to get that extra time. And I know that's imperfect. Not all judges are are as fair as the next one, and that's another thing that needs to be addressed. I do care about the idea of judicial immunity, and that's why I am for the repeat, for the overturning of Stump v. Sparkman as a Supreme Court decision. But that goes into a whole other. So bottom line is we're generally not for laws to sort of put people to different classes um, because and then also preventing people from doing things in that kind of manner because it just does get rid of transparency and stuff like that. Sorry, I kind of went all over the map on that one. No, that's good. I think it, it needed that. So that's great. Um, abortion. 
abortion. Now, actually, here this is a, this is an interesting one. This is one of the things where libertarians are very split on. Um, uh, so I'll just give you my position real quick. So I kind of take a, a both sides position. So my political position is this: that I just really just rather not have the federal government involved um, because it just complicates things, and I don't think it'll actually reduce the amount of abortions there. But two, chances are not much will move in politically in either direction for decades because it's such a contentious issue. So if you took all the money that goes into politics to, uh, on both sides and instead gave that to charity, to charities that would support women, make it easier for them to support them when, to, when they're pregnant, uh, help them uh, so that way they can choose life, you would actually be able to um, advance on that issue better on both sides because you're not forcing anyone to do anything and you're, you're making it easier for people to make um, to choose to have a child, whether they decide to keep it or put it up for adoption. Also, that charity money could be helped to support families who want to adopt those children. Also, those charity dollars could be invested in technology to help remove, um, to make it easier for a baby to be removed earlier in a pregnancy. So that way women who don't want to necessarily carry it for nine months, they can remove the child and they don't necessarily have to terminate the child. But the idea is that I'd rather that money go into those sort of voluntary solutions. And that's a big thing for libertarians, the voluntariness of something, because voluntary voluntary solutions are always better than coerced solutions. And that's why we generally don't want the federal government involved in much, if anything, because generally though that, that implies some level of coercion on individuals. So I think people in the pro-life uh, side of things can get a lot more done if those dollars went to charity and those charities did those things that I just, I just mentioned and we can reduce the amount of, of life. But basically you do have libertarians on the pro-life side because libertarians are big on property rights and life is your property. But at the same time, your body's your property. So you also have a lot of libertarians on the pro-choice side. I don't think it's simple as either side. I do think there's sort of a middle position um, because you do have a conflict between two individuals' rights. But it's not a clear-cut issue. And I don't, I don't think having a clear-cut position either side does the issue justice. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. 
And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Should we have a federal Department of Education? No, because the Department of Education doesn't improve education. Literally what the Department of Education does is that it we use, use basically will tax people a dollar. So they'll send a dollar to the Department of Education, then administrative costs happen, and then they send 80 cents back with strings. So then what happens is that when you go to the school and say, okay, here's that 80 cents we took you know, back from the dollar you gave us, um, but you only get it if you do the following strings. So then what happens is that you decrease diversity in education. Because all these schools are spending more than 80 cents to get those 80 cents to follow all these different uh, guidelines that the Department of Education puts in. But that limits the amount of diversity. It limits the it actually ends up producing the resources for the school. Um, and then we don't find better ways to educate our kids because all the schools are following the same playbook that the Department of Education is basically bribing them to do. Uh, I'd rather... Most most aspects of the school are run generally by local communities, and I'd rather keep it that way. Now, is every school going to be perfect? No. Some schools are going to make bad choices, but when people see the results, other schools are not going to make those choices. When other schools make amazing choices that have results better than anything we've ever expected, other schools are going to emulate those choices. But we don't discover those things if you don't have um, these experiments. And that's actually, it also goes down to how the economy grows as well. Um, which is a separate issue. So I'll come back to that whole idea of a bunch of different uh, bets and how an economy grows, but I'll, I'll come back to that. Should we have public schools at all? I think right. I think for the foreseeable future, that's going to be sort of the way things work. But I do think you can actually, one idea that I think is a step in the right direction would be, imagine this. Imagine if the local community still has all the money they spend on kids, but instead of the local community running public schools, they say every kid has $5,000 that goes towards their education automatically. So then what happens is that everyone's going to start trying to come up with education institutions so that way they can get kids because they want to make money to get the, that $5,000 per kid. The problem is if you, the school you make isn't good, some other one, someone else who makes a better school, everyone's going to enroll their kids there. So then what happens is you create this market and you're not the poor kids are going to get just as good an education as the rich kids because you can choose where you send your school. It's the same five thousand dollars no matter which kid it is, 
but you have different choices. And then if one choice isn't good, other people are going to start going to the better choice. And that puts pressure on all the choices to be as good as they can and cut through the inefficiencies. Because right now you don't have any choice in education. If you're, in a, if you're just in the wrong district because you can't afford to live in the, buy the house in the good district, you're a kid subject to a bad education. That's, to me, really, really a deep injustice. But you, you can set up you can still have publicly funded education, but set it up in a way where people compete for those dollars and, the, and that competition is going to be based on results. And um, you'll have better education in the long run. What's your position on climate change? Uh, um, basically, I don't deny climate change. It's a, it's a thing. Now, again, the, the different studies that are out there, they have a different range. Now, I actually listened to you, the guest you had recently on um, – who advocated for a carbon tax and talked about grace and all that. Now, my issue with most government solutions when it comes to climate change is that one, I don't think they'll actually change much. So, for example, a carbon tax, people a lot of times will just pay more. They'll just pay more of the gas tank, but they'll still be using their cars. Um, cap and trade is an idea. The problem is with cap and trade, you can probably limit some of the carbon usage but the problem is that was going eventually was going to happen is that all the carbon all the pollution rights will be owned by the larger companies and you'll price out competition so you'll end up creating monopolies with the larger companies and then that's going to create political issues down the road so to me the best issue with situations like this and the issue and the one thing that actually has been working up till now is outreach and education Al Gore did a lot more for climate change making a documentary than he ever did as a legislator by making one documentary which didn't require him to force anyone to do anything, that didn't require him to use any taxpayers' money. It's just something that he did. He got a lot of people to change their behavior and the way, you know, if we spent more of our money and spend more of our efforts trying to educate each other and outreach each other and teach each other why we should change our behavior, we'd actually probably get a lot more results today than waiting for election, three or four elections to force people to do something. And that's generally my, my, my attitude towards climate change, is that I'd rather look at solutions on how we can reach out to each other and invest in technology today for a more environmentally friendly move, because that's something that can actually have results today, instead of pursuing politics. If I, if I could convince people to stop putting their money in politics and putting their money into investments in charity, you're going to have a lot more change in the world today than you would after decades of, of one failed election after another. I want to pretend for a second that you're a sitting United States senator right now. Mm -hmm. Would you advocate for confirmation hearings for Merrick Garland? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're going to get it's you have a you have a split Senate. You're not going to get a much more conservative or a much more progressive Supreme Court justice. So, I mean, I guess I would actually I'd actually try to encourage a maybe even a libertarian Supreme Court justice, but that would only be practical if Gary Johnson was president. So basically, if Gary Johnson didn't become president, then probably Merrick Garland is the most uh, the best thing, the best option you're going to get with input, in, even though he would not be my ideal choice or not even be on a short list for myself. Um, he's definitely sort of the most moderate choice that's going to be available politically at the moment. So I would just try to get it out of the way. That And the question's important to me because as a moderate Republican, a lot of the reason that I put myself in that bucket is I care a lot about process, right? Even where process produces outcomes I don't like, the process matters to me. And so agreed. Very I, much agreed. Yeah. As I think about like the role of the president versus the role of the Senate in choosing Supreme Court justices, 
I just, I don't feel like we, as if, if I'm sitting in the Senate with you, Alex, I don't feel like we get to pick the justice. That's not our role, right? It's advice Agreed. and consent. So um, l- let me ask you about this then. If President Obama came to the Senate and, and you are a sitting senator and wanted to authorize the use of military force in Syria, what would you do? I would vote against it, but I definitely appreciate that he brought it up. And I wouldn't necessarily, I would be, I would be much more vitriolic if he just tried to, which has happened over the last eight years, tried to do it under old authorizations that were for other conflicts. So trying to go through the constitutional process of getting the legislature to approve the use of military force is the right process, but I would vote against it because I don't think it's wise in Syria. And can you talk about what you think the solution to the crisis in Syria might be, or is that just something that... Um, is is not in America's interest, so we sort of look away. It's not that it's not in America's interest. It's not in anyone's interest. Um, because it, let's take a look at every time the U.S. has gotten involved in regime. I mean, I pointed out the situation with Guatemala, but we take a look at Iran, Iraq, Libya. I mean, every time we've gotten involved, we've, one, created instability in the region, and two, created a newer, worse enemy down the road. And now we've gotten to the point now we have ISIS. And basically, getting involved in Syria results in either backing Assad, which if we do that, you're going to have a lot of people who are on, on who have been oppressed by Assad who are going to be very upset at the U.S. after the fact, and they're going to form an organization that's going to be upset with us, and we're going to have another dangerous enemy down the road. But if we don't, if we go against Assad, then ISIS becomes emboldened, and ISIS becomes stronger and more dangerous, and that's that 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 also. Um, there's no easy answer for Syria. There's no easy answer for the region. But the more we've gotten involved, the more complicated and the worse the possibilities have gotten. So to me, and then plus, we spend a lot of money doing it. So what's going to happen is if we keep doing what we're doing, we're going to keep creating a worse and worse enemy, spending more and more money. Eventually, we're going to run out of money and not be able to be involved anymore. And we're going to have a much, much worse enemy and be in a much, much worse position at that point for all parties involved, the people in the region and, and here at home. So to, uh, it's just one of those things where the region kind of has to stabilize organically. It's really the only the only successful regime change was Tunisia, where the regime change occurred organically. And I do understand and I do empathize with the the human cost there. And I, I wish I you know again I take a look at decisions policy wise that could have been different a long time ago, but they are what they are. What can be done is humanitarian aid far as giving food but even then you know a lot of times we'll we'll intervene still under humanitarian grounds um and still make those decisions so i'm always very hesitant about giving the authority too much authority because then what happens is that you give an inch they take a mile kind of thing so for example the authority that was given for uh the iraq war is still being used to justify almost all the interventions that have happened over the last five years because they don't want to even bother trying to get a new one. So I always get, I'm very, there'd be a very high bridge. It would have to be a very specified, very specific bill as far as what the authorization is and what the scope of the authorization is for it to get my vote because I don't want to give an inch and then have them take a mile. How would you have voted on the, the Justice Against uh, Sponsors of Terror Act? Oh, okay, so the, that's the Sovereign Immunity Bill recently, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here, actually I did a whole video on this recently. 
Um, first, the first thing is the hypocrisy of the entire legislature there. So I'm running against Chuck Schumer, who put a poison pill in the bill um, at the last minute. So that way, technically, the effect of the bill should be minimal in all reality, because basically the Department of Justice can shut down anyone who tries to sue, let's say, Saudi Arabia, but then he goes and votes for it. So because he didn't want to take the political pressure. So he takes he takes active measures against the bill, yet openly votes for it, purely out of political for political reasons. So that kind of hypocrisy upsets me. Although, and then whether this bill should have been passed or not passed, I don't know. I can, I can, I, I see both sides, but to me, the doctrine of sovereign immunity, I think does warrant the discussion. I don't think there was enough debate or discussion over that bill. It was just something they kind of voted and got out of the way. And that to me is a problem. That's not how it should, you should have a discussion. But the fundamental principle behind the bill is sovereign immunity. Like I heard you guys discussing it, um, the other day, and that's kind of what got me sort of thinking deeper about it. And um, basically, I have a—I always have a lot of skepticism over the word immunity in general. So whether it's sovereign immunity, judicial immunity, prosecutorial immunity, um, I do think it's worth a discussion. Here's why: because when people don't have risk, people are more willing to make worse decision. So one example that a lot of people understand is the oil, the caps of liability on oil companies. So uh, an oil company can only be sued for so much money if they do an oil spill or something like that. And that was something that Congress passed and something that I'm against. Um, and because of that, the idea is they would, since a limit, how much they have to lose is less, the incentive to necessarily invest more in safety measures is, is not there. Because, again, it's always a cost-benefit analysis. So if you limit the cost, the benefit then starts outweighing the cost. People start making different decisions. Same thing goes for the way decisions that judges make. Same thing goes for the decisions that countries make. So while I don't think the particular bill for the purpose of just for one – while this bill was up, put up for one specific situation, which was the people who wanted to sue Saudi Arabia, while I don't think that was wise, this particular bill wasn't wise, I do think it's it, – Thinking about the idea of sovereign immunity and whether we need to start rethinking it, I do think there's a justifiable, um, uh, even if it's like not retroactive, saying, okay, here, going forward, we're going to treat this differently. I think it's worth a discussion. The reason being is that countries will then make smarter decisions. For example, if we did think, if countries going into it knew that they were liable for X, Y, and Z, they might think twice about sometimes interventions that didn't need to happen or they might think differently about how hostile they become towards another country because they don't they're not going to less want to be in a military conflict with another country out of the fiscal the kind of liabilities that occur after the conflict so i do think there could be now where that line is i really don't know it's the same thing with judicial immunity where i don't think the line we have currently is right but it doesn't mean i have a clear idea where that line should be that's why I think there should be a discussion about it. Um, but yeah, no, I probably, I'm not quite sure how I would have voted on that bill because I would have wanted a discussion. So if there wasn't a discussion, I probably would vote against something if I'm not given enough time to discuss it and debate it, regardless of what the bill is. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, 
And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. You talked about transparency as one of your core values. Is Are there specific measures that you'd like to see procedurally in Congress to create more transparency? I'm thinking of things like uh, Congresswoman Mia Love's proposal to have, have legislation requiring every bill to be a one-issue bill, right? Um, are, mm-hmm. are there mechanisms like that that you would advocate to increase transparency in our government? Yeah. I mean, my I think the best way to increase transparency is simplicity. So, so just like the bill you presented where it was one page or it's one issue, that makes things simpler. And things that are simpler uh, are more transparent. That's the same way I feel about regulations. If you make something simple, uh, the analogy I always use is the, the, the card game Uno. Uno is very simple. You, it's never hard to find somebody to play Uno with. 
But it's also very rare for anyone to get away with cheating in Uno because the rules are so simple. All of us can see whether the rules are being broken or not. So if someone puts a red 2 on a blue 4, you're like, no, you're cheating. You can't do that. That's how regul- If there are regulations, that's how they should be. They should be simple so that way we all can see when someone is cheating. Problem is, everybody wants more complicated, complicated rules. And businesses advocate for more complicated rules because the more complex rules get, the easier it is to cheat. Um, so basically, I'm all for simple government. So I always say, you know what? If we can't all agree on smaller government, let's at least agree on simple government. So I want to simplify the tax code. I want to simplify the regulatory code. I want to simplify the legislative process. So a one-page bill is a great step. I think term limits are a great step, even though that has nothing to do with simplicity. Um and then also, I mean, you can even have word limits. So even if it's one page or, or one issue, have a limit of how many words you can use in a bill so that way you can limit the scope of the bill. Um, all those would increase transparency. And also having sort of mandatory uh, public time. So it's basically the bill has to be visibly public for X amount of time before it can be voted on and has to be posted somewhere online. Although all those would be things I'd support because I want people to be able to, like when you hear like Nancy Pelosi say you have to vote for something before you can see what's in it, that's disgusting. Um, so I do want transparent in that regard, but I also want the legislators themselves to be more transparent. But I don't want to force them to do it. I want the people to expect them from it. So that's why I want to give transparency as a legislator, so that way people become accustomed to expecting it, and then you know then they vote differently if if, if people don't meet those expectations. I want to create new expectations. Let's talk quickly about the current presidential race. I'm assuming that you're a Gary Johnson supporter. I'm wondering if you are troubled at all by his his sort of uh, international affairs snafus on uh, on national television. Um, yes and no. Um, far as so, some of the gaffes were a little unfair. I mean, mainly the the Chris Matthews one. Like, if you take a look at the clip, he literally did not give him like a second to answer. Like. The minute he asks the question, he starts continually like pushing him on the question. So that's it's. I can imagine it's hard for anyone to really think through an answer when someone's badging you and then changing the answer there. Although I mean, I wished Gary Johnson had, you know, was a little bit quicker on those issues. And then the uh, the Aleppo question, he didn't understand the question, but he had that was not asking what is Aleppo was definitely the wrong response. Generally, the appropriate response when you don't hear a question or you don't fully understand the question, you're supposed to say. Can you repeat the question or um, or can you elaborate or something like that? You know, so uh, I just think that's just requires more media training. I, I've met Gary Johnson several times and his record shows amazing judgment when in when at, in positions of power. I mean, he started a business from high school and grew it to one of the biggest businesses in New Mexico. He was a very successful governor. For two terms, he climbed all seven, all the highest peaks on all seven continents. And climbing a mountain, if you don't have good judgment, you're going to die. So we know Gary Johnson has good judgment. We know that when he is in a position of power, he uses that power well. So it doesn't give me any calm over his ability to be president. It does sadden me that two gaffes, um, because it's mainly around those two particular gaffes, people dismiss him entirely when you have two people who have continuously exercised bad judgment, especially with like Hillary, who un- under bad bad intelligence voted for the Iraq war, when people like Bernie Sanders and Ron Paul didn't. So they had better judgment. Um, when people like, uh, and then Chuck Schumer, my opponent, voted for the Iraq war as well. And then when Hillary Clinton was sec- Secretary of State, supporting the efforts of going to Libya, once again, recently there were reports showing that 
the reports that she went under with were bad intelligence as well. So continuously making the same mistakes does not reflect good judgment, even though maybe she'll be a lot quicker on those kind of foreign policy questions, I still question her judgment. And same in Donald Trump, I don't think anyone really needs to go too far to question his judgment. Uh, so when it comes to judgment to me, which is the most important quality, because at the end of the day, you're going to be surrounded with advisors, surrounded with people giving you facts and information, but you need someone who can process and have good judgment with that information. And Gary Johnson, to me, has a record of doing so. There are certainly, you know, different things I would have wished played out differently during the campaign season, but at the end of the day, Gary Johnson is still the one with the best judgment out of the three, and the only one who's been honest, has integrity out of the three options. So to me, it's a no-brainer. Is that a commitment issue, you think? I hear what you're saying about judgment. I do worry about knowledge, because I think that in order to exercise that excellent judgment, especially under the kinds of pressures that a president does, you need some foundational knowledge and experience. And while I would think, based on Gary Johnson's resume, he would have that, it it isn't coming across as it relates to foreign policy. Yeah, so, I mean, Gary Johnson, he is not the best talker. Um, like I always say, he's not the best at talking the talk, but he's one who's always walked the walk. Um, and yes, I trust me, Several people have, you know, and I mean, he knows a lot more than a lot, than he oftentimes gives the impression of. Again, he's just not the smoothest talker because he spent most of his time doing things and talking about things. Um, so I do think his experience shows effectiveness. But yeah, no, I agree with you. Knowledge is important. But basically, if I were to weight knowledge and judgment, judgment weighs higher and I do think Gary's knowledgeable. And I mean, Hillary Clinton uh, argue, probably is the most knowledgeable, but I don't. But I, when it comes to judgment, Gary Johnson has the best judgment. And to me, that's a more important quality. So sometimes I wonder if Gary Johnson has not worked as hard as he needs to to develop that foreign policy knowledge because he is more of a protest candidate. I'm wondering if you think that he that does he believe that he's electable? And then and then the more important question that I'd like to kind of shift to is, you know, you're running against Chuck Schumer. That's an uphill battle. What are you learning in your campaign and how do you think long term we can have more viable options, for, you know, beyond the two party system? The only way to change the culture of politics is to change the voter, the change the culture of voting. If people don't vote differently politicians won't act differently. So as long as the, the two major parties can take anyone's vote for granted, because they know that as long as they put the other party, they can convince you that the other party's candidate is bad enough that you'll just buckle down and vote for them, they'll continue putting up bad candidates and continue being dishonest uh, as they have been. So people just need to vote differently to get different results. Um, now, regarding Gary Johnson, you have to put in perspective. He doesn't necessarily have the same resources that the other candidate has. No one's going to be better spoken on foreign policy than... than than Hillary Clinton, because she's she was Secretary of State. She was dealing directly with these nations all these years. But that's not the only aspect of being president. Um, and then Donald Trump, well, Donald Trump's Donald Trump. Um, and Gary Johnson has been running a company. Now, yes, granted, he, you know there should be more time spent on foreign policy. But again, his campaign operation is a lot smaller than the other candidates. He, the amount of work he's got to do versus the other candidates is a lot more. The places he's got to basically... The, the 
the work he has to do is a lot more than the other candidates. That he doesn't necessarily get the get the luxury of spending as much time. He doesn't get the same private briefings that Hillary gets. Uh, he even though he did request them, and he was actually turned down uh, by the government to get those briefings on foreign policy. So I, I don't think that's all his fault, and 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 should be also put into context. And I do think he's running to win, and I do think there's a distinct possibility. Um, there's a couple different, especially after yesterday, with all the different bombshells yesterday with. Um, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, especially Donald Trump. So the, the, how the, the dynamics going forward, I really have no idea. It's really, it's a, this is one of the most interesting elections ever. Now, regarding my race, I am running to win. I know it's an uphill battle. I recognize that, but I don't, I don't run resting on that laurel. I've been traveling the entire state. Right now I'm in Rochester. I live in Brooklyn. Uh, I was in Buffalo a couple days ago. I was in Syracuse. I was in Lake George. I'm going to Batavia tomorrow. We're traveling the entire state and meeting people, going to different media outlets. We're calling people on the phone, getting signs up across the state, um, doing everything that's supposed to be traditionally done. And I'm the only candidate doing it. When I was at the New, at the New York State Fair, the, one of the biggest events, and actually the biggest event in New York State, I was the only candidate there. Schumer wasn't there. Wendy Long, the Republican candidate, wasn't there, who's hitched her wagon to Donald Trump in a big way. Um, when I was in Binghamton for Speedy Fest, not there. I'm the only one who's actually been doing the retail politics of actually going out, shaking hands, talking to people, traveling the state, doing what people need and actually trying to represent people. So I do think we're going to exceed expectations by a lot. We're running a race to set a model for how libertarians can be competitive. And I plan on being competitive in this race. So I th I think that's awesome, and I just I really applaud you for g getting out there and taking this on. Um, since we mentioned the the bombshells of the weekend, um, the you know another aspect of being a senator is often being asked to comment on things that are not issues or policies, but they're just happening. So what's your take on what we've just learned about Donald Trump through private comments he made about women and uh, his pursuit of women in, in non-consensual settings? That is a disqualifier. Um, I know he wants to dismiss it as, oh, this is just, you know, talk between guys. But no, guys, even at their, even at their worst, never say things like that. That's that, that what he basically what he suggested was full on sexual assault. That is a disqualifier. And uh, that's why basically everyone in the Republican Party is pretty much disowning him at this moment. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested to see how my opponent, Wendy Long, is going to handle this. As she's been very, very pro-Trump this whole and basically rested her whole campaign on Trump's candidacy. So I'll be very interested to see how she responds to this. But bottom line, it's, 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 it's disqualifying. And it's the same way I feel about Hillary's comments, calling people a bucket of losers, just as bad as Donald Trump calling people a or a basket of deplorables, it's it's all, it's and then also talking about having a private position versus her public position. If you're a politician, you should be able to say what you think. Like, I, I tell you, like, I have very different, I have very radical libertarian views, but doesn't necessarily mean when I sit there and talk about, but I also have a legislative point of view, which is mean, I'm not trying to legislate my, my extreme wishes, but... I, I, I'm willing to tell people this is what I think personally versus here's what I want to propose legislatively. She should have the integrity to do so as well um, instead of talking behind closed doors and saying, well, you know, we can't talk to them. So both of them, to me, have disqualified themselves over the last 24 hours, and I hope most people realize that. Alex Merced, thank you so much for talking with us. This has been a lot of fun, and I appreciate you tackling every issue that I've thrown out in front of you.
Thank you very much. It's been great. All I ask is that everybody uh, check out the website, regardless of whether you're in New York or not. This is only the beginning. I have a lot to say, a lot of videos, uh, a podcast that tells you what I think on every issue. So just check out alexmercedforny.com. That's alexmercedforny.com for the campaign. And my personal website, alexmerced.com. And Beth, thank you so much for having me on. I love the show, and it's been great to be on. Thank you for joining me for this special episode. I can't wait to hear your feedback. Sarah and I will discuss all that feedback next week, along with the debates and a host of other issues. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. 